Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's a real privilege to have on the show Dr. Matthew Lynch. Dr. Lynch is a associate professor of Old Testament at Regent College in Vancouver, and he's on the podcast today to talk about his latest book through InterVarsity Press, Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. And this conversation is going to be a deep dive into one of the most prickly problems with reading the scripture, and that is the flood story where God destroys, according to the text, every living creature except for the animals and the family of Noah and the animals that Noah is able to collect and take onto the ark. And then the second part of the book reflects on the conquest of Canaan and the issue of what looks like essentially to be a genocide committed in God's name and in fact under God's orders by Joshua and the Israelites. So how do you reconcile these, I would say, scary portraits of God and some of this extreme violence with the loving God who sends Jesus? Well, Matthew has spent a good bit of his academic career thinking and teaching on this topic. And I want to say that I think this book, Flood and Fury, is one of the very best books on biblical theology that I've read in a long time. And specifically in terms of dealing with these violent texts, I would say this may be the best book that I've read so far on the topic. I hope you love this conversation as much as I did. Welcome, Matthew, to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, and again, we're here to talk about your latest book, uh, Flood and Fury, Old Testament Violence and the Shalom of God. But before we get into that, would you mind uh, sharing briefly some key moments in your spiritual journey that have brought you to 2023 and and you're an author and a a professor of Old Testament? Sure. too many points along the way to mention, but I, I guess one critical piece is that I was raised in a Christian home where the Bible was very important, was valued, and I, I consider that a real privilege, even if not every single theological position I hold now aligns with you know, my, my upbringing. It's been so formative and important, and so I, uh, my grandfather on my Dad's side was a Baptist minister for um, I, over 50 years, probably closer to 60. And uh, he, my dad one time tallied how many sermons he preached. It was, it was like, you know, 10,000 sermons or something over his lifetime. So a real preacher. My dad was ordained, but not a preacher, more of a teacher. Um, my mom taught Bible in high school. My grandmother on my other side taught Bible, so there's a. It's just you know I I was raised in a in a Bible immersive environment, and and I think that also meant with it um, because I I had a pretty good upbringing that I I didn't question the violence in the Bible until I was older, and um, because it was part of the culture that I was immersed in, and and I think then when I did come to questions of violence later on, it it 
it did mean I, I came to them from a perspective of trust and um, not from having been burnt badly. So I I tried in the book, you know, to emphasize, uh, empathize with those who are coming at that question from a very different perspective, you know, maybe a really bad experience in the church or with the Bible in their family or, you know, different different um, stories that people have with scripture. Um, so then I when I was an undergrad, I went to Israel for a semester, and and that was really formative in terms of turning my attention toward wanting to study the Bible academically. I had, to that point, you know, been interested in the Bible, but not, not from an academic perspective. And studying the you know culture and context of the Bible, and then also, um, you know, early Jewish literature was very interesting to me at that time. Um, those those things kind of sparked in me an interest to want to go deeper, and I had exciting professors as well. And as you know, that can just have such a formative impact. And I did going going back to my undergrad. I'm still, you know, friends with some of them, like Gary Schnichter, uh, in in Old Testament. And so so then I you know I, I after turning my attention there, I was like, well, I want to go further. And I came to Regent, then where I'm now, and. Um, uh, majored in Old Testament studies for my MA and THM, and then went on for doctoral studies at Emory. So, yeah, from there, the rest was was history in terms of just focusing on deep study of the Bible and also questions of its ethical, contemporary, spiritual relevance, um, how it, how uh, what role the Old Testament should have in the church and. I think I've always enjoyed the fact that the Old Testament, this sounds terrible, I've always enjoyed the fact that the Old Testament's been neglected because it, it it was sort of like, this is a huge opportunity, right? And 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 probably in some ways has, has fueled my sense of vocation, although my heart is not that the church remain <laughs> ignorant of the Old Testament. Um, but it but I like I like kind of working more in them the margins of scripture. And, um, and so, so yeah, that's been, those are a, f a few pieces of my coming to study the Bible and, and, you know, I, I owe such a debt to so many people along the way. No, thank you. And it, it, you clearly have a pastoral, uh, kind of thread that runs through the whole, uh, book mm -hmm. on violence, flood and, and fury. Can you talk about like some of your other maybe motivations? Cause at some level mm -hmm. you're kind of rushing in where angels fear to tread to even deal with, uh, <laughs> these kind of issues. You have yeah. the flood and the conquest, which everybody as kids love those stories. Then you grow up and you think, uh, mm -hmm. Oh, good grief. And I even remember my own daughter when she was five, she did the Noah's Ark story. And, you know, I love that. I had felt bored and everything when I was mm -hmm. a kid. My daughter comes home and she's crying and I'm like, what's yeah. wrong? And she goes, God killed all the poodles. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm thinking, what about the people? That's what I was thinking. But, uh, but, but, but she, then I thought, wow, yeah. this really is, uh, you know, that was the first mm -hmm. time. And I really think, wow, this, this is kind of a, yeah. a, uh, even scarier than I thought it would be. So like, uh, just talk a little bit about yeah. that. Like, so what brought you to really write this book? Was there a person you were thinking about? Yeah, I I think I was there are a couple of people I had in mind. Um I think it in in particular like people in the church who are resistant to the kinds of easy answers that they might get uh, regarding the the horrific violence that we see in the Old Testament. Um 
and who who maybe have a hunch that like there's another way to look at this, but don't have the language for it or don't have a way forward. So I wasn't writing this for someone who's like, I want to refute the skeptic, right? I want to refute the the uh, the new atheist who's who's trying to undermine the Bible. Um, there are resources for that. That's not really what I had in mind. Um, but I am thinking about the people who are maybe in a church environment where there isn't either space to to think through these questions or um, their faith is kind of teetering because of the problems of violence. And and so so that's that's kind of who I wrote it for. And then in terms of formative experiences and that kind of led me to want to write it, there there are a couple of things like when I was um, uh, coming coming to study the Bible more intently, um, I was you know, my first day of grad school was 9-11, 2001. Wow. And, and so that story, that event played in the background of my graduate studies. It was just a major part of the experience, you know? Um, and so I was studying Joshua. I took a class on Joshua during that time. And, and it was probably the year of the Iraq invasion. I can't remember exactly or, or slightly after it. Um, so 2003 or four, so you can't study Joshua during the Iraq invasion and not and not wrestle with questions of the book's implications today and how it's appropriated and how it's taken up in modern discourse. And, you know, when the world is being portrayed in terms of pure good and evil. Um, so there's that sort of geopolitical context. And then also personally, you know, when I had gone to Israel as an undergrad, as I mentioned, I I think it was a kind of social awakening for me in terms of issues of justice on the ground and uh, in that, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is, you know, raging again right now. Um, it, those, like, those questions were were being put in front of me in a, in a way that they hadn't been before while I was studying the Bible. So it's like the simultaneity of those things, I think, prompted me to reflect and and look more critically at scripture. And then as I got into doctoral studies and teaching the Bible more, it it's a question that comes up for students all the time. And so I had to wrestle through it at least for the classroom, if not more, and then also for myself in wanting to think through this. And I, and I think what I saw that was really a pleasant surprise is that people are relieved to simply have someone acknowledge the problem and the challenge. And then it's a huge opportunity for discipleship to walk with people through the text in these, in these, into these hard texts and not to, to rush away from them and just paint, point at all the really nice passages and say, Oh, look over there instead, like a distraction technique. So, so I think people are hungry for a kind of discipleship that enters into the hard stuff. Um, they want it personally and they also want it with scripture. Yeah, that's good. And and for those that are listening, if you decide to pick up a copy, uh, one thing that uh, Matthew does really well, or Dr. Lynch does really well here, is uh, clearly loves Scripture and gives really close readings on these hard passages and pulls out, I would say, some interesting, really interesting nuggets. And if you're familiar with the passages, you're still going to learn stuff. Because I know I I have as I've as I've read through the book, uses rhetorical stuff, gets into history, archaeology, and just kind of pulls all this stuff together into kind of a comprehensive uh, method. 
And I guess that that's what uh, kind of surprised me when I read the book. Mm -hmm. It's it's not that long. You're just a little over, let's just a little over 200 pages, mm -hmm. and you were able to condense these arguments, but still be really substantive. Um, how hard was it to get all this down to a 200 page book, basically, as a writer and as a thinker? Yeah, it was it was challenging. You know, some parts. I wanted to write a whole book on, like in particular, the historical archaeology section in Joshua. There's just so much there. And and also that was probably the area that's that was the steepest learning curve for me and and in some ways the most exciting um, because that historical context of the conquest is really important. Um, but and then other parts of it were actually things I had taught on before. So I was able to maybe have a sense of where I needed to focus and so that was not not as difficult um but because the book is not um you know there's certain books where they're they're heavily thesis driven right like you, you've got like one primary argument my book is basically saying that because of the nature the complexity of the nature of this problem of violence in the bible we have to come at it with different tools so when you're pulling out different tools and using them uh it's easy to want to um, show all the ways you can use that tool. <laughs> but when you have that many that you're you're using, it, it is difficult. So, so yeah, I, I had to do a lot of containment and and cutting along the way and hopefully in the right places. And just on method, I don't want to bore the audience with all this stuff, but what, what do you think, like in a sense, you know, you come at the end, it's actually, um, I don't it's not disappointing because you're just 100% honest, but like at the very end of the book, you end up um, saying, you know, literally to have, you know, have a, have you solved the problem? Well, the problem of violence in the Old Testament can't be solved. And you, you say yeah. that. And I was wondering, it would have been interesting if you were to put that at the very beginning of the book. Yeah. Um, but you essentially make a cumulative case argument in some ways just by hitting on all these different facets. And so, if, you know, if you're not convinced by one piece, it's more about mm -hmm. the preponderance of evidence. And then you frame, bring theology in at the end, confessional mm -hmm. theology, and then even end with um, the idea of mystery. So mm -hmm. um, how, how satisfying overall would you say that kind of argument is? I must say from a pastoral perspective, because obviously yeah. if somebody wants to push you to the wall on, you know, you, you have substantially laid out the frameworks. And I would say mm -hmm. you've argued this about as well as I've ever seen anybody argue it. Um, and it feels good to the soul, but mm -hmm. in the brain, there's still loose ends. So like, what yeah. what is your sense of um, what you've been able to accomplish? Yeah, I think, thank, thanks for that. I think the... I think pastorally, what I'm hoping for is something that's robust, but it's not very, but my argument is not easy to, to convey in a quick soundbite. And so I think the weakness of taking up the approach I've offered in the book is that when you then turn around and try to enact or, or practice it or something like that, um, it requires a kind of slow patience that often the church doesn't give space for. Um, and so if I had a kind of snappy answer to it, the problem of violence, um, that, that I think at one pastoral level, it would be handy for that question that comes to you as a busy pastor. Like, what do we do about violence? Well, if you just see it this way, oh, thank you. That resolves it. Right. Um, but, but part of my approach is that the, the complexity of the problem requires a read it slow, um, response and read it carefully and prepare to be surprised. And so 
that requires an entire posture toward the Bible that, that allows for it to be its wild self and, and its, as Brugman puts it, its undomesticated self. Um, but yeah, it also recognizes that even though you might not be able to solve the problem of violence or it might not be a resolvable issue, that doesn't mean that it's a zero-sum game. And so you have to throw your hands up and say, well, there's no point in worth working on it then. And, and that's part of the point I try to make at the end of the book with regard to the notion of wicked problems is that, um, so I, I, I talk about violence as a wicked problem, which means it's not not in the moral sense, but in the, the nature of its complexity. A wicked problem is like poverty, which defining poverty is difficult, uh, if not impossible. Knowing how to approach the problem of poverty is extraordinarily difficult. The factors impinging on it like you know race and class and economics and education and and so on they all impinge on the question of of poverty and how do you know when you solved it right like is it when everyone has equal pay everyone has a roof over their head uh, there's no inequality or is it equal opportunity you know like that we don't even agree on when we've resolved it but that doesn't mean that we throw up our hands and say well there's no point in addressing trying to address poverty then so, so I think pastorally, it can relieve us of the expectation that, that scripture's challenges and theological problems are, are ones that, that we need to, as pastors or as people in the pew, need to have answers for that satisfy fully. The choice isn't between fully satisfactory answers and no answer. Um, but there's a kind of middle middle ground that actually holds up long term to scrutiny and to pressure and to testing, and 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 really, I think that's what scripture, the kind of faith scripture wants to lead us into anyway, um, beyond this problem of violence. And so, I think the pastoral implications go beyond this particular issue into other areas too, where we can see scripture as a kind of training ground for teaching us to become people who um, face the complexities of life and faith and journeying with God in a way that can um, deal with the paradoxes and the, and the contradictions and the difficulties, um, but also resign ourselves to God's mystery in a way that um, is, is informed and, and is uh, faith-filled. And and one of the ways that one of the things I love I love that answer what you just said and uh, by the way I was going to read off the back of the book um, um, Brent Brent Strawn um, said this is the most helpful book on the Bible I've read in a long time and that's the kind <laughs> of endorsement you want and I, I would actually agree with that and I think mm. the re the folks who are listening can already hear in your own voice that the careful thinking that went in there and one of the most one of the most positive things about the the book which overall fantastic is you essentially answer the problem of violence in the Old Testament without essentially pushing the Jesus button, which is always yeah. a good button to push, of course, but you deal yeah. substantially with strong exegesis. And then it's only really at the end of the book that you get into like Apostles Creed and mystery, yeah. but you never yeah. just simply, hey, this all worked out with Jesus on the cross uh, sort of thing, mm -hmm. which that, you know, you could have said that too, but <laughs> you, you, you didn't. And, and I think yeah. that's what makes this book really powerful. Instead, mm -hmm. You connect the mystery, and I'm going to kind of mm -hmm. move into your book a little backwards, but 
Yeah. What I thought was really powerful is um, one of my favorite passages in Exodus, that, and you make a big point of this, is that one of the mm -hmm. central features of the Old Testament's presentation of God, which uh, Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 7, where you have God speaking yeah. uh, his name and declaring mm -hmm. himself essentially. I mean, this would be my language um, that at, at the core of God's internal character is love. Mm -hmm. um, yet you also have that odd third of the fourth generation stuff. So you have this mystery. It's actually, yeah. it's not mystery, but it's a, it's an unbalance between God's yeah. mercy and love yeah. and God's judgment. And you, yeah. you know, I've called that like the, I call that the John three sixteen of the old Testament passage and you, <laughs> yeah, know, you traced all through right. that, but, mm -hmm. but talk a little bit about that, how that's one of the key kind of pillars mm -hmm. that in the old Testament that allow that you have to at least be in concert with if you're going to talk yeah. about violence. Yeah. So I wanted to pan out from the problem a little bit because there is a way of working on the problem of violence where even if you might say like, well, I know we can't resolve this fully, you you so bang your head against the question and for so long that that it can it can skew your picture of of God, um, and I think I think what the Bible wants to give to us and and help us with is a, a kind of prioritizing and sifting and centering um, of like what what is at the heart of the faith, um, and we can follow Jesus' example here, and where Jesus says he sums up the law, and he doesn't. He doesn't respond to the question that he's asked with, well, all the law is important. You got to do it all, right? Um, even though he teaches that we need to, you know, take seriously the whole law. He says, love God and love your neighbor is is the kind of baseline and the 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 foundation on which everything else is built or the peg on which it all hangs. Um, and do to your neighbor, you would have them do to you. So there there are ways where there's a, there's a kind of center and there's a periphery. And I would say within the Old Testament, the Old Testament does that with Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where at this key moment in the story of Exodus, as you know, because you teach Exodus, um, when the whole project of Israel and bringing them into the land is in question, God comes and, and declares his name, and then he fills out that name with the character creed of the Lord, the Lord of God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding, steadfast love and faithfulness, etc. Um, and it goes on to talk about how he he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, but he punishes the um, children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. So what's key in that passage, if we just look at it on its own, is this idea of steadfast loyalty or hesed, in, to use the Hebrew term, to thousands of generations, um, and then on the other hand, judgment to the third or fourth, and and so this that character creed presents us with an imbalance in God that is tilted toward mercy and His steadfast loyalty, and but you can't deny judgment, right? You, you can't just erase that from from the picture of of what God does in response to sin. But you also can't say that, well, he's merciful and full of judgment, like two equally vying forces within God. So the 
the heart of God's character is just in like massive imbalance toward mercy and love. And, and that's central, not just because I happen to like that passage, but because it's quoted 12 or 13 times across the Old Testament. And as you know, pieces of that character creed are picked up all over the place in the Old Testament. So it's kind of a drumbeat that, that keeps the tempo for the whole Old Testament. And so when we're wanting to kind of pan out and say, what can we say at the end of the day about God's character? Old Testament itself says, here's, here's the heart of the matter, all right? Um, and when Israel sings their songs about Yahweh, they say that, you know, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. Like Psalm 136 has that refrain over and over again. And they don't say God's wrath endures forever. And they don't say God's harem, you know, wipe them out and destroy them entirely, endures forever. So the Old Testament itself teaches us what to hold at the center and what to not marginalize, but at least recognize as non-central. And I think that process of, of um, knowing what's at the heart and what's maybe secondary is really important, not just theologically, but also in terms of thinking about God's, well, this is theology, but uh, God's character as well. And that's why I use the Apostles' Creed as a, an analogy that the church has recognized throughout the ages that there are core theological convictions that need to be recited over and over and drilled into our heads so that it's part of our DNA. Um, and in the Apostles' Creed, there's nothing about baptism, even though that's really important. Um, there's nothing about hell, even though um, that's the you know important kind of concept to wrestle with. So it, to say it's not core doesn't mean it's not important, but I think that kind of coming back and then centering on that question is kind of what I wanted to do in that section. Yeah, super helpful. And just to bounce all the way back to the beginning of the book, then um, you, know, you kind of end with that framing about God's hesed, and uh, mm -hmm. which I think is super helpful. At the beginning, you start with uh, with creation. So yeah, why begin with creation, and how does that allow you then to kind of start? What what kind of framing does that do for understanding yeah. the biblical narrative, especially these uh, texts that, at least on the surface, seem to be um, extremely violent? Yeah. So just as that that character creed has a centrality you know within our understanding of God's character the creation story has a priority in terms of the biblical story as a whole and so understanding how the biblical story starts is not just an interesting historical or you know um primordial idea but it's also about setting the terms of God's redemptive activity in the world um, what went wrong with creation is the stuff that God is working to redeem. And so Genesis 1 portrays a world that's that's decidedly, it's made um, by a God who is um, who cares for this creation, who loves it. And there's no violence in the beginning. And that's that's really important culturally at that time and for our understanding of violence, that it has no necessary part in creation. Um Unlike the, as you know, the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth, there's no uh, subjugation of a violent opponent. 
the the waters in the beginning are simply unformed. They're not yet. Uh, God doesn't have to come in with a sword and and subdue them. And uh, humanity is given the command to rule and subdue, which in in some contexts does have violent connotations in the Bible. Um, but they do so as co-rulers and image bearers of a God who who clearly wants this creation to flourish. So we're to rule and subdue in a way that that reflects a creation-loving God. Um, and we have this primordial, uh, you know, vegetarian diet, so that violence can't be, you know, enacted in particular ways. So, so the Bible frames the story in terms of the shalom beginning, this this story of of peace as part of the DNA of creation, and that that sets the tone for where God's ultimately bringing things when God will make all things new, um, and that shalom is restored. So the framing of the story helps us see the violence in the middle as an aberration of what should be and what will be. That's good. And I'll, let's let's jump and spend a few minutes on Joshua. And I don't want to give all of the arguments away. This book is definitely worth uh, getting a copy of and, and reading through carefully. But again, I was I'm, I'm tempted. I'm not. I haven't just completely decided what, which one I'm going to go with here. But I'd love for you <laughs> to just kind of unpack one of your, uh, at least one of your arguments on how you handle uh, the stuff on Joshua. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of it, like I thought your the stuff you did with swords was really interesting, but I, I'd also thought yeah. maybe, maybe you can, you can say if you, what you have time for, but I'd, I'd also mm -hmm. love to hear either a little bit about that, how that sort of subverts violence mm -hmm. or the majority minority report within mm -hmm. Joshua itself that suggests sure. that there's more happening than just wiping everybody out. So I'll, I'll kind of give you the pick, whichever one you think is the easiest on. <laughs> Maybe I'll try to squeeze them both in. We'll see. <laughs> okay, that'd be cool. Yeah, I can do. yeah. I don't want to give too much of your good stuff away there. Oh. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot more in there. Um, yeah. So the, the beginning of the book starts out with, um, you know, if you're a reader who knows where this is going, you know, you know this is going to be a conquest account. And so Joshua is getting the people ready for battle. And you would expect some sort of pep talk um, uh, about, you know, showing no mercy, about getting their swords sharpened for battle and so on. And and the things he arms, us, arms them with in the beginning are things like meditate on Torah um, and, and the need to, to worship. And so, so the book kind of subverts our militaristic expectations by saying the most powerful thing that people can do as they enter the land is to be Torah meditators. And then the surprising move that you that's um, shows up then is the first time that swords appear in the book, they the people are to take flint swords, literally in Hebrew, um, and circumcise themselves in enemy territory. So they've already crossed the Jordan. And if you know the story of Genesis 34, where Simeon and Levi trick the Shechemites into circumcising every male in the town, that puts them in a vulnerable place where they can be annihilated. Um, and, and so the people are crossing the Jordan and wounding themselves as a mark of the covenant in enemy territory. It's this totally surprising and subversive move, especially from a military perspective. And um, but I think the book is telling us that there are more important things than than weapons, um, that the strength of God's people comes from observing Torah and from bearing the sign of the covenant 
and they celebrate Passover and they there's this procession around the ark uh, you know following the ark across the Jordan and um so then the sword shows up the theme of the sword shows up again at the end of Joshua 5 where the people are Joshua's like kind of getting ready for battle and in a, a pretty strange story admittedly the text literally says he was in Jericho and I don't know I mean depending on how you take the preposition there um, could have been at Jericho, but the bait preposition, as you know, um, you know, it, maybe the most natural reading is in Jericho. Anyway, he encounters this man with a drawn sword, and Joshua asks the the binary question. It's very natural in a military context. He says, "Are you with us or against us?" And and the it this guy says, "Neither." But as the commander of the armies of the Lord, <laughs> I am here. And so so then so he denies this this affiliation with Israel or against Israel, which is interesting. And I think part of what the book is trying to do is to to help us see that the lines between good and evil, you know, run through the heart of every person. Um and and then so Joshua still sort of in this military mindset is like, okay commander of the Lord's army, what will you have me do? You know, like, I'll, okay, I'll join you and your army. And he says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. It's, it's this Moses at the burning bush moment where he's, he's going to have his, his categories redefined. And I think that's one of the things the book is doing is redefining our categories of who's in and who's out. And, um, and so that's the second sword encounter. And then, you know, at the end of the book, even it says that Joshua says, you did not win by your, the strength of your sword, um, but by the power of God. So, so the book, like, it, yeah, the, the theme of sword is, is interesting and in how it unfolds. Um, and then one of the yeah, other themes that I, I talk about in the book in terms of, um, reading it carefully is this idea of a majority minority report that um the a quick surface reading of the book would suggest that Israel went in wiped out the Canaanites and settled it and and that comes from certain passages in the book where it says after you know summarizing campaigns they left nothing alive that breathes and that breathed and all the promises that God had made to Moses were fulfilled. And they were faithful in doing everything the Lord had commanded his servant Moses. So you get this strand running through the story of total obedience and total fulfillment of the promise and total removal of the Canaanites. However, <laughs> there's another kind of strand that runs through the book that makes clear that the Israelites did not wipe out every Canaanite. In fact, they're Many, many running around all over the place at the end of the end of the book, and certainly as you open the book of Judges. And and this is not viewed at, even from the perspective of the book, even as a failure on Israel's part, but simply the slow process by which Israel was going to come to settle the land. Um and so I talk about those in terms of um like these these two stories both being important. And two stories that the book asks us to hold together, you know, back to that kind of complexity and tension idea. 
Um, so we're not to like dismiss one and embrace the other because one of them is about God's faithfulness to his promises. Um, it's about total adherence to Yahweh and rejection of all other competing loyalties. And then the other strand, I think, is is giving us a more nuanced picture of what actually how it actually looked on the ground. Um, and the the fact that lots of Canaanites did join with Israel and intermixed with Israel. Um, so so I think like this these two strands in the story are uh, you know it's almost like having two you know like two synoptic gospels but mashed together and and you're you're trying to like make sense of the interweaving of let's say if you tried to weave together John and Matthew, <laughs> uh, not like Matthew and Mark are a little similar, more similar to each other, but like Matthew and John, it, it would be an interesting combination, right? Um, so yeah, that's a bit of the the interplay of those two, but I think it's important to like to try to get at what are these both doing? And one is that kind of hyperbolic over-the-top rhetoric that you get in some parts of scripture um, that is making a, a particular point. And we are to take it seriously, even if we don't take it literally. Um, just like when Jesus says to, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Um, or if your hand causes you to sin or your foot, cut it off. Uh, he he wants you to take it seriously, but not literally. Uh, and I think that's where that that kind of majority report is that that potent, punchy, powerful rhetoric. <laughs> Good. No, it's super helpful. And I hope this gives give, given the listeners a, a little taste. And again, the thing I really appreciate about the book is, you know, the answer to the hardest questions is actually we keep reading the text. Uh, yeah. One of my mentors always, uh, he would, he reads Bibles for people. He's in his eighties now, but he still does oh. it. So he'll mark up a Bible for somebody and give it to him. And he'll, he'll write in the margin on some text. It's like he writes N Y. Uh, yet, yeah, N Y E L, not yet enough light. And he says that there's <laughs> there's certain texts that you got to squeeze really hard to get him to sh to shout gospel. And so, and you've yeah. done a, a really good job to to, yeah. to help move through some really hard things. And and the last thing you said is kind of the the one I don't know maybe challenging question. I just wanted to ask your opinion. I think this will help the folks that are listening. Because, you, you know, you mentioned like, you know, Jesus talking about cutting things off, but then yeah. there was always people that took that stuff seriously and didn't get the yeah. joke. And they actually, yeah. you know, like some early church yeah. fathers castrated themselves yeah. and things yeah. like that. <laughs> um, so that being said, obviously, like Joshua has been used by some groups to justify, mm -hmm. you know, genocide in its own way, even in the name of of of, yeah. of Jesus sometimes. So what as you thought about this and you've thought about this really really hard for a long time and it comes out in the book but like what does it mean to when we understand divine revelation that these sort of texts exist um and that we have to work extremely hard mm. to not misread them and yeah. so and you've surely thought about that and i know that's not a there's no easy answer i'm just curious like yeah. you know why why do these texts that are easily co-opted Mm -hmm. to do the exactly the opposite of what essentially yeah. you're suggesting that these texts are really doing. Yeah, it's that's a tough one. I think yeah. I think there are a couple of things I would say um and and there's no there's no way to kind of bulletproof the bible or make the bible 
non-susceptible to misuse. And, yeah, um, yeah. and I, I think, I think for one thing, you know, we are Christians. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at the life of Jesus, I think there's something about the Old Testament read well that leads to the person, uh, the kind of life and teachings that we see in Christ. And I say that not just as a sort of hermeneutical point that like all scripture eventually culminates in Christ, which I do think, um, and the spirit and God, the father. Um, but I, but I think more specifically, like Jesus was, uh, uh, someone who immersed himself in scripture. He was formed by scripture. Um, that was his curriculum growing up. And, and so I can trust that the Im full immersion in scripture, deep study of it, should lead to a, a character like Christ. Um, so I think that's important. I also think that when it comes to like these hard texts and, you know, the fact that they're ambiguous and can be taken in different ways um, is, is a call for the church to embrace what the book itself recommends, which is to, to meditate on this day and night. And so Joshua 1.8, calls the people to that and i think calls its readers to that as well that this is the torah is something that requires really careful going over again and again and again and and so and we see the book kind of guiding us into that right at the beginning so it says meditate on torah day and night so that mean and i take it to mean that that the the torah is not going to yield just to a quick read. And so if our actions are are based on a quick read of the Bible, maybe we should just pause. Um, because when the people encounter Rahab, right in Joshua chapter 2, this is the first place the book takes us. We're presented with a Canaanite woman who's a prostitute. A quick read of the Torah would say, show no mercy, leave nothing alive that breathes. Okay, the Bible says it, that settles it right? But instead, we encounter someone who, you know, as you get to know her, she's more Yahwistic than, you know, gives this amazing Yahwistic confession. She desires to be part of the covenant people. And so she's embraced and enfolded into the covenant. And, and I think Joshua wants us to see that as a good reading of Torah. So, so as I would say, the Bible is designed for the kind of reading that's sustained and and mauled over, and and so we should expect it it to demand that of us as we as we read it and try to live out of it, um, and and so in the church then that calls us to be the kind of community that fosters that sort of engagement with scripture. Yeah, that was a fantastic answer. I loved it. Beautiful. So thank you. Um, I want to be um, kind to your time here. Appreciate uh, you coming on today, but I would like to ask you just some, hopefully, some quick questions here at the end sure. to kind of wrap things up. And I like to frame out the podcast with uh, with these. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, you know, like what's next for you? You've kind of already written a really hard book that maybe you were afraid to write, or maybe not. But is there is there a, is there another book that's really on your heart that maybe even scares you a little bit uh, that you're going to want to try to do at some point in your your career? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I don't have like a a clear answer to that. 
I mean, I'm working on a commentary on Isaiah, but that's not one cool. that I'm like, I mean, I'm thinking about that all the time, but in terms of like a, a next book that I'm trying to formulate in my mind, it is something along the lines of the way that scripture leads us into complexities and mysteries, but then also provides us with a way of thinking through them. So not just around this question of violence, but more broadly as as a as a habit that scripture encourages and fosters. Um, so if you if you take, for instance, like the Cain and Abel story, uh, Walter Moberly has pointed out that the Bible fronts this story of the problem of apparent divine favoritism, where God chooses Abel's offering but not Cain's. And and kind of hits us with that difficulty right up front, um, and but yet it doesn't just leave us there, right? It it provides something of a way through for Cain. You know, if you if you master this, um, there will be uplift of face, literally in Hebrew, um, you will be approved. So so I think like I'm curious about the ways that the Bible leads us into and through mystery. Not to clarity, but also not to just total confusion. Um, so, so that's something I'm thinking about um, right now, uh, among other things. Well, that sounds really good. Um, what What's a typical day look like for you? In other words, like what 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 keeps you grounded in mm -hmm. in Christ and uh, kind of mm -hmm. vibrant in your faith? You have uh, rhythms that you typically practice. Yeah, yeah I um, you know daily reading of scripture is important to me. Um, practices of prayer, not just on my own, but also with my wife and and family, um, and then and then the the kind of rhythms of study and worship with my church community too are really important. Um, so I think I think being connected in my local church is is really um, uh, life giving to us as a as a family. So that my engagement with scripture is not just this sort of sole vocation. A job that I have on the side apart from others. Um, I, I've, you know, I, I look back at my life, a lot of like the growth points have been through spiritual conversation with people. So that's not a sort of daily routine, but um, something that's been very formative uh, for me as well. Yeah, thank you. And now here's the hardest question of all. If you boiled it down to two to three books outside of the Bible that have really shaped you deeply, what would uh, what would those be? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um two or three books outside the Bible. Yeah, oh. just what comes to mind, I guess. It could even be more recent. I thought that's really hard, but uh that's no, a, it's a, it's a, a good one. it's a good yeah. it's a, like I'm i I'm looking around my office right now, like what is it that's that's shaped me the most? Um um, I, I would say there are certain writers yeah, that have good. formed me. So I, I'm, I, I would go for like people like John Levinson, um, who I found very helpful. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, my um, previous professor, Brent Strawn, has been really influential on me. Uh, so I, I would say either and either of them in terms of like what they've what they've written have have been very formative. Um like there are novels along the way, like Lord of the Rings that, you know, are always kind of playing in the background and <laughs> um, Brothers Karamazov and some of those uh, books as well. I, yeah, I, I'd probably single those out. 
I would say brothers Karamazov uh, prepared you to write this book since you had to deal with the grand inquisitor section of that book. So if you can get through that, uh, you can handle yeah. pretty much anything that pops up in the old Testament there too. That's, no, that's good. Yeah. I'm glad I asked that because I'm glad you threw some fiction into a lot of folks don't go with the fiction. Mm. So that's, um, that's yeah. really awesome. Yeah, I, so thank you. Yeah. I do love, you know, I would, I love Kaim Potok as well. So, um, the, my name is Asher Lev and the chosen and, um, some of his other books I've, read over and over and just really enjoy him a lot it's good it's good then last question this should be pretty easy like where, where's the best place that listeners connect with you do you have a website you know, on social media what would be some folks if they want to find out a little bit more about you that they can check well, out if they well on script um so the podcast that i i co-host um i'm on twitter i don't know how much you'll learn about me through that um and uh <laughs> but you could connect that way and then let's see i'm on facebook but i never use it uh for correspondence so i, I do a little bit so you could you could reach me that way i don't have a standalone website but okay you know i'm on regent's website all right that's good that's good yeah i'll put links to to your podcast and into into twitter and stuff there too so again i just want to thank you for uh coming on to my podcast uh, today and i really want to thank you uh, for writing such a, fa a, a, a fine book and using uh, your mind and uh, your love for God to to create uh, a, a tool and a resource that can help a lot of folks either not slide away or maybe if they are feel like they're uh, mm -hmm. uh, or, or be able to help someone, especially for pastors mm -hmm. that are listening. This is a great resource that you could share some of the insights with people that um may be struggling in their faith and potentially even lead someone into the faith by showing that the, these what seemingly insurmountable problems actually have ways of talking. So thank you for, yeah. uh, for giving your life to this work. Oh, thanks so much, Brian. I really appreciate your engagement. And um, you've, you've picked up on my, my heart for this uh, there in that concluding comment. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. And thanks, everyone, for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode. Until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world.